The University of Oregon's Sports Product Management Master's Program teaches the business of creating sports and outdoor apparel, footwear, and equipment. You'll learn how to innovate, spot business opportunities, pitch ideas, collaborate cross-functionally, measure success, and much more. Network with leaders in the sports and outdoor industry through your instructors, program mentors, guest speakers, and optional internship opportunities at companies such as Adidas, Nike, Columbia Sportswear, On Running, Reebok, Under Armour, Keen, Hydroflask, and more. The program is available as an immersive, on-site, 18-month program for emerging talent based in Portland, Oregon, and an innovative 21-month online program for working professionals. Visit spm.uoregon.edu for more information. One more time, visit spm.uoregon.edu for more information. People are your most precious resource. And I think we learned again in the pandemic that if you let people go, you may not get them back. Certainly not in any you know quick period of time. The general manager of the D.C. Sports Commission at the time was a wheeler dealer. And I learned a lot from that attitude as opposed to just being, a, you know, an ops guy in a stadium who was carrying a clipboard and checking a box. I figured out how to get deals done. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. Does anybody remember Circuit City? I definitely do. In 2008, I was living in Seattle and we had a great Circuit City right around the corner. I bought an Xbox there, an iPod, a bunch of games, a new TV, all kinds of fun electronic gear was at your local Circuit City store around and in your neighborhood. They had been in business since 1949. They had established a great niche in the consumer electronics world. They always seemed to have people at their stores. The employees wore cool red shirts instead of the competing blue of Best Buy. And then one day in 2009, they were gone. They ceased to exist. The store was cleaned out. The shelves were empty. And only a ghostly image of the Circuit City name remained on the side of the building. Ooh, dramatic. At the same time, Retail stores, other retail stores like the Sharper Image, Linens and Things, KB Toys, banks like Lehman Brothers and Washington Mutual all met the same fate. They were gone, out of business, bankrupt, closed the doors, were gone. See ya. That was the Great Recession of 2007, 2009. My Circuit City was gone. So was my bank, Washington Mutual, which is where I did my banking at that time. All in all, more than 170,000 small businesses failed during that two-year period. Why is this important? Why are we talking about this today? Well, because past is often prologue, right? We can look to the past and it can determine what we can expect in the future. And in 2007 to 2009, that was one of the deepest and greatest running, longest running recessions that we faced as a country. And the sports world was impacted. And there are a lot of people that think we may be heading into a recession and it might not be as deep or it might not be as long but it might exist in 2023. So I just listed off a bunch of retail stores and banks that suffered and struggled. In relation to our world of sports, I've long been told by economists, far smarter than I am, that sports is recession-proof. Fans will always pay to be entertained. They'll show up. Well, not to be overly cynical, but I think those economists are referring to a time when tickets were a dollar and beer was 50 cents. Now it'll cost you a full paycheck to take the family to a game. And I have a better alternative by sitting on my couch and getting the beer out of my refrigerator. So is sports recession proof? Do we have fears that could be mounting up into the future? Should we worry about the opportunities that are there in the next six months to a year? 
These are important questions. So what happens next? What happens if we head into a recession in 2023, as many predict? Well, like I said, I can be pretty cynical, but I can also be pretty optimistic. I tend to think of myself as a realist. But in this case, I decided not to be the prognosticator. I'm punting that responsibility to today's guest because I have a, he is far smarter than I am and he's lived through it all. From 2004 to 2014, Mark McCullers was the president of the Columbus Crew. And during that great recession period from 07 to 09, he was staring at the balance sheet, looking at the finances, watching the ticket prices and the sales numbers. He knew the concession sales, and he made choices for the business of the Columbus crew to weather that recessionary period. Now, as the principal of the McCullers Group, Mark and his staff work with teams and leagues to develop stadiums around the U.S. and Canada and consult on their big business choices. So, no one knows better than Mark what to expect if a recession should happen. He can give us the history. He can predict what the future looks like based on his book of business right now. And he also goes into a ton of advice on leadership, team building, and what he looks for when he's hiring high-rising talent in the sports industry. So there's a lot to share in this episode, a lot to digest, a lot that looks to our future. So buckle up. Here's Mark McCullers. Mark, how are you? Good to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Yeah, this is a, it's so interesting when I get a chance to talk to executives in the sports industry with as much experience as you have. And one of the things that I wanted to start out at, it's a big, juicy subject. It's important, I think, to a lot of people listening right now is that you have some historical knowledge that not everybody else has. You were the team president of the Columbus Crew from 2004 to 2014, which means you presided over a major sports organization during the 2007-2009 recession that we lived through as, as the United States. So you have a unique point of view on this and legacy knowledge we don't all have. In your point of view, if we are headed towards a recession, what should we, the average working sports class, expect? What should we look for? What do you think will happen? What do you, what do you, what do you see happening in this environment? Well, I think first, I appreciate you saying that I have historical perspective and not just saying that I'm old. <laughs> you uh, and me both. <laughs> I, tell, I tell this story. People now call uh, the original Crew Stadium that I was involved with Historic Crew Stadium. I'm like, it hurts yeah, a little that's bit. That's historic. I, I like to call it the original Crew Stadium. But to Fenway Park question, is historic. Crew Stadium <laughs> yeah. is 1998. It's not historic. Yeah. But go ahead. Doesn't seem that far, <laughs> yeah. far uh, ago, long, long ago. But, you know, it was an interesting time because, uh, you know, I took over in 2004. Yep. And we won the Supporter Shield in 2004. We won it again in 2008 and 2009. <laughs> and we won the MLS Cup in 2008, right in the middle of this economic downturn, right. recession, market collapse, all of those things. And so, you know, we, we talked about it and thought about it a lot as it relates to, you know, this golden opportunity of, of being, you know, really exceptional on the field and a great product and in what those, you know, economic uh, circumstances were, were costing us. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, looking back on it, you know, you just got to be creative. You know, you got to understand that at the end of the day, it's it's all about your value proposition in my mind. And, you know, in times like 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 these and like those, yeah. I still think people are looking for an outlet. Um, I think they will prioritize that in whatever discretionary funds that they have. And I think you just have to lean into that and, um, 
you know, but, but also be, you know, smart uh, on the financial side of things, you know, which you should be anyway, right. uh, frankly. But, um, you know, I think there's always there's always still opportunity uh, in a market like this. Um, you, you just have to be on your toes. So um, it's it's difficult. But um, look, we just we just got through a pandemic also, which, right. you know, when you, when you compare the circumstances for sports and entertainment, uh, you know, recession doesn't seem so bad. No, it's true. And and I think there's a lot of interesting topics we can dig into deeper. What do you remember from that time as far as staffing? Did you guys end up having to contract? Was there a certain approach or strategy to it? And again, we have a lot of people in our audience who are either in college trying to figure out their path or they're the first 10 years in their career and they're working and they're concerned right now. So any kind of perspective in there on, on a high level view, you're talking with the big decision makers. What was kind of the approach to those, you know, those moments where you had to make decisions on staffing or where it may happen or things of that nature? Yeah. You know, for, fortunately I worked for Lamar Hunt yeah. um, and the Hunt family and, you know, they were so loyal to their people. Um, it was never even a conversation about, uh, you know, cutting staff or, or, or letting people go uh, or furloughs or anything like that. We were, you know, very cognizant of our, of, um, uh, you know, the ability of whether we can invest Right. Uh, in certain things, invest in capital improvements in the stadium or uh, invest in personnel, things like that. So we were very cautious in that regard, um, you know, but, but, but people are your most precious resource. And I think uh, we learned again in the pandemic that if you let people go, you may not get them back. And it's really probably penny wise and pound foolish yep. uh, to think that you're going to lose talent and get back to that level, certainly not in any you know, quick period of time. So um, I think most sports team owners understand that. Although again, during the pandemic, I know that there were a lot of, uh, you know, layoffs and it was necessary, but I also know a lot of owners that, um, that didn't do that. So yeah. it's all about the, you know, the organization and, and I think the, the culture and, and the, and the wherewithal. You definitely saw a lot during the pandemic, those teams or leagues or smaller organizations or whatever, that had to make some of those tough decisions, it has been hard for them to rehire. And we saw a lot of people, I saw a lot of it, especially in college athletics, where they were over-indexing, I'd say, on people's love of the idea of working in sports and, and not understanding that when pushed away or not given a good enough salary or not given a good enough benefits or other, other ancillary things, they may leave and not come back. And I hope that the pandemic was a bit of a learning opportunity for people too to realize, like you said, your people are your biggest asset. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. And I think maybe there were some lessons learned. Yeah, uh, in that by by some of the uh, sports team properties, you know, and and owners. And so, look, I, I think the intent, you know, is is to weather the storm. I mean, with all the the owners and the leagues that that we are working with, you know, frankly, there's not a whole lot of focus on the recession. There's a lot of right. focus on inflation yeah. and the projects we're working on. Yeah. There's a lot of focus on interest rates and the cost of capital. Um, but, um, you know, right now we're, we're not seeing owners, you know, really taking action uh, in anticipation of this recession as it relates to personnel. That's great to hear. I was going back and doing a little bit of research because even though I lived through it in 2007, 2009, it does still feel like a really long time ago. <laughs> so back then, you know, it was the banks were too big to fail, but they failed. And yet the Yankees that year gave out $430 million in free agent contracts. 
it, it's kind of amazing to look at that perspective. And, and I've read from Andrew Zimbalist, sports economist, talking many times about, you know, whether the sports industry was, in, uh, was recession-proof. And I, and I wonder, do we sometimes look at the big shiny object of like the Yankees or these other teams that may be recession-proof, but there's a lot of underlying damage that can happen to smaller teams and leagues or partnerships or sponsorship deals or other failures that way? Like, is there reality to this concept that sports is somewhat recession-proof because people will always look for that entertainment dollar? Or is there more nuance kind of to the conversation, do you think? Yeah, that's it's very interesting to think about, uh, you know, what what is really more in the public domain and what people don't see, you know, happening in, in the background. Yeah. Um, but there certainly, you know, are things that, you know, that are happening uh, because, you know, companies, you know, are cutting budgets or, or they don't have the capital to put into to sponsorship deals, you know, things of that nature. They can't buy tickets. They can't buy suites. I mean, those things happen. Yeah, that, that's that that's a reality. And so, you know, there, there is a pinch point inevitably, where we start to feel the pain uh, of, of that reality. And I think what, um, you know, what, what a lot of people do is ask for a little bit from everybody, you know, um, and we, we ask that people don't abandon the, the, the sponsorship or the tickets or whatever the case may be, but maybe they, you know, lean in a little bit, we lean in a little bit, and, you know, just make sure that things keep going yeah. at some level, and we adjust. Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, just terminating relationships and, you know, especially things that have been, you know, been fostered over year, uh, over the years, you know, brand, uh, brand affiliations, brand affinities, yeah. uh, brand recognition, uh, you know, relationships that have been cultivated over time, you know, th- those are, those are going to um, sustain, I believe. We'll come back to more on this topic. I do think it's so interesting and so important right now for everybody to have this perspective and nobody knows it better than, than you do, but I want to get into a little bit of your background a little bit too. So your first, as I mentioned, you were team president of the Columbus Crew. You now you're on your run your own sports consulting firm, McCullers Group, which we'll definitely dig into McCullers Sports Group. Uh, but your first gig in the sports industry was the assistant stadium manager for the DC Sports and Entertainment Commission. How did this first opportunity set the stage for the rest of your career? How did it kind of open up that opportunity in front of you? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it was a it was a great first opportunity, and and I tell people I've been really blessed to be in the right place at the right time with the right people. And um, the general manager of the of the DC Sports Commission at the time was a guy named Jim Dalrymple, and and Jim was a wheeler dealer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so we we did a lot of um, in house promotions on things. Um, we promoted a Riddick Bow fight. In RFK Stadium, I remember uh, that fight. I know exactly what you're really? talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It, maybe it wasn't the best decision, but nevertheless, you know, uh, Jim was a guy who was very entrepreneurial, and um, and I and I learned a lot from that attitude, as opposed to just being a, you know an ops guy in a stadium who was you know carrying a clipboard and checking a box. You know, I figured out how to get deals done and. That's, you know, that's how I think of myself now. And that's, that's part of the culture of our company right now. And we, we don't, you know, put this as our tagline, but internally <laughs> we say, we say we're deal makers, yeah. we're closers. That's what we do. And um, so I think, you know, that's, that's the one thing that I think of. Um, and then just the, the, all the other things that I was able to, to be exposed to, you know, with the DC sports commission. So the, the bid for the 1994 world cup. Yeah. Uh, where we were a host venue and putting that bid together and putting those deals together 
in order to um, to host that event. You know, I, I started off in the ticket office, uh, you know, there at RFK Stadium. But we also ran the D.C. Armory. Armory. We hosted okay. uh, 37 shows of Ringling Brothers Circus. Uh, it was one of the largest circus runs in the in the country. And we did, you know, boxing and wrestling there and trade shows. So just the diversity of yeah. the, the types of events and business, uh, promoters, networking, things that, that I was exposed to, uh, you know, in, in that eight years when I was in D.C., you know, those are all things that I still come back to today uh, when I'm looking at situations and trying to problem solve. Um, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is how we got this done before. Or maybe if we structure it this way, uh, this is how it can come together. But um, it was a very a very uh, promotional type of environment. And when I say promotions, I don't mean ticket promotions. Yeah. I mean, you know, partnerships yeah. in terms of um, bringing events together and, and generating revenue for the organization. So in, in 1998, you were named the general manager for Columbus Crew Stadium, historic Columbus Crew Stadium. <laughs> um, and you were overseeing design and construction. It would have been the first MLS soccer, it was the first MLS soccer specific stadium. Literally at the same time in 1998, I was working at a major sports network and the entire operation was running bets on how long they thought it would be until the MLS would fail. Like there was an mm -hmm. undercurrent of people in my side, on the media side, that were like, this league is never going to last. So I ask you, as you look back and think that soccer specific stadium, how instrumental was its creation to the overall success of the league? Because now we're seeing 21 out of the teams, the, our soccer specific stadiums. How important was that in this full dynamic of the success of the league? I, I think it was was critical. I think it's you know it's it's an iconic stadium and an iconic moment in the sport in this country, you know where there was an investment of that magnitude made. And as Lamar Hunt used to say, it's the proper packaging for the sport. And so you know the the whole presentation of of the game changed uh, with uh, you know Columbus Crew Stadium, the original yeah Columbus Crew Stadium, <laughs> um, and. Um, so I think it was a seminal moment uh, in the sport. There certainly, you know, were still some some struggles. The, the league still contracted by two teams in I think 2000, uh, which was probably another moment where the ship was righted and some tough decisions were made. And Phil Anschutz and Robert Kraft and Lamar Hunt said, "No, we're going to go forward. You know, we're going to stay the course." And it was a few years before before other stadiums were built, but. I just think about Lamar Hunt and, 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 you know, somebody who will always have an influence on me professionally and personally. Uh, that's just what he did. You know, he, he saw it and he saw what it meant. And, um, you know, it was certainly one of the things that as you go back, not only in the history of major league soccer, but in, in the history of the sport of soccer in this country is going to be something you always see on the timeline as an instrumental uh, accomplishment. Yeah, rather than being a leaseholder to actually control your own stadium and all that goes on inside of it has to be a game changer. And you guys were proof of concept. All right, I'm racking my brain. You said two teams contracted in 2000 and I got Miami Fusion, right? Wasn't that one of them? What was the other one? That's one of them, Tampa. Tampa. Oh, so close. I, I was trying to get yeah. it in my head, but I couldn't get there. Okay. <laughs> my, so, my, hometown, my hometown of all places. Oh, is that right? Uh, See, I'm a Boston guy. Devastated. So. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, okay, the idea of being a team president is pretty daunting 
to a lot in our audience, I guarantee. But I, I think it's also setting up a blueprint. It's also saying these sort of things are attainable and these are these are things you can set your goals on and, and reach toward, which I think is amazing. And that's what we're trying to do here. As you look at it, and I, I so much want to get into McCullough Sports Group and don't worry, we will, but I'm still curious about in that role, like how would you look back and define the key components of what you were trying to accomplish on a day-to-day? You've, you've probably got your hands in everything, but how do you allocate your time? How do you know what's most important? What were your major focuses? How would you, how would you kind of line that up? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you think about that time I, I came to build the stadium and to open the stadium. And when Jamie Roots left to go be the senior VP of marketing for the Texans, Jim Smith came in, who was an associate athletic director from Ohio State. Okay. And Jim, Jim knew that he needed some help in certain areas. I actually was uh, pitched an idea to him become executive vice president. And that really is what positioned me to move on to be the general manager and then ultimately, you know, the president. Uh, I, I never played soccer. I was a baseball player. My dad was a college football coach. Yeah. And so, you know, it was daunting to me too at the time, but I, I knew that I had a passion for what we were doing. I knew I had a, a passion that, you know, was the reason I got into this business anyway, in, in terms of what we mean to the community. And so it just, it occurred to me how I would go about filling this role. And so I guess you would say it starts with vision, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's where it, it first came to me in terms of, of how I would go about it yeah. and what was most important. And in, in that particular role, you know, the hunt said, look, we want to focus on the business. Don't worry about the competition side. Coaches will take care of that. Yeah. And what I found out was, yeah, that's not really the case. The coaches <laughs> needed support also. Yeah. And, you know, they needed resources and I needed to understand what they're trying to accomplish. So, um, you know, being strategic, I think, is, is one of the things that we do well now. And one of the things that I think I did well then and that means being able to prioritize um, and understand. I, I talk about um, service leadership, right? It's this inverted pyramid. Uh, you know, t- a typical organizational chart will have the president at the top mm-hmm. and you know everybody else at the bottom. It, it's inverted. The president has to support the rest of the organization. The president has to think about uh, what does my team need in order to accomplish their goals? Um, and what are those goals? So being able to agree upon that and provide direction and, and work within a team, uh, which is is one of the things I do miss about working in a team environment. Yeah. Um, although I would say now with McCullough Sports Group, I'm doing the same thing. I'm building a team and, uh, you know, I, I really I get a lot of um, satisfaction uh, out of that. But, you know, so, so building a team, you know, yeah. building your team and planning your team out and and helping them execute uh, I think is, you know, what I look back on and and say, okay, those are the things. And then, and then I've always been a community minded person. So that was really one of the core things was, was how I was going to sell, you know, and, and, and my pitch and my value proposition was what the club and the stadium and everything that we do means to the community. And that's still something that we pitch, you know, with the project we're working on today. I'm glad you brought that up because as part of your role as team president, you're also the president of the Crew Foundation. And I have a, I have a quote that I absolutely adore and I, I would give credit to whoever said it, but I heard it at a panel one time. And it just stood out in my mind that community relations is food for the soul of an organization. And it's always stood out to me. It's like, it just, I, I love that. Why was the work for the Crew Foundation so important to you? Why did that matter so much? And, and, 
I've seen over the last, I don't know, it feels like the last five years that I've been doing a lot of these interviews, community relations seems to be getting more and more, and, and foundations, et cetera, seem to be getting more and more power in the overall organization, where it used to be kind of an offshoot, separate from the business operations. It seems like it's getting a little bit more of a seat at the table. Uh, do you see that? Is that true? Is that accurate? And so uh, kind of all-encompassing there. Why, why did it matter to you? And is that role kind of gaining in stature somewhat? Well, I, th- I I absolutely think it is. I hope it is. Yeah. Um, but I think teams are understanding the connection of their brand to to the community better, and and, and why that is so critical, um, and, and why it's not just you know making donations or doing things you know that are transactional. Uh, you have to think about what's important to your brand, to your organization, and and you have to connect with the community uh, along those lines. And so I think that's why it's, you know, become kind of more, more front and center and um, more important in a lot of organizations because, you know, it's your reputation, yeah. right? It's who you are. It's what you're about. That's how you, that's the best way you can express it is through uh, how you interface, interact and support the community uh, that you're operating in. So um, I, I do think that, especially in these days and times, you know, where there are a lot of social issue, issues, there are a lot of good that sport can do. So I think for all of those reasons, it's it's definitely been elevated uh, over the past several years. Do you have certain accomplishments from your time there with working with the community that you feel particularly proud of? Yeah, I mean, so when we started the Crew Soccer Foundation, you know, our, our one objective was to was to build infrastructure and fields in underserved communities. Mm. And so we, we did that. Um, and, you know, every time I would go and and see those fields in action and see kids in in neighborhoods where they, you know, didn't have those sorts of resources, yeah. you know, it was it was just really satisfying. There was one program that we developed uh, also that I was particularly proud of, and it was a referee scholarship program. And so, you know, I used to complain about the referees quite yeah, a bit. You and me both. Uh, <laughs> I still and, do. <laughs> and, and, and I, com- I, com- I complained to the point where uh, MLS put me on the referee committee, uh, the competition <laughs> committee. And I'm like, look, if, you, if you're, you're going to complain so, so much, loud, have a productive yeah, voice gonna, in this. Yeah, yeah, if you're going to be so loud, why don't you come in and pitch in <laughs> and, try to, and try to do something about it? We'll show and you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but we, we provided money to, to, to teen, teenagers, kids, you know, junior high level, high school level to get their coaching licenses and get them started, get to get them their equipment so that because there's a need in youth soccer for referees. And there's a there at the time, right. certainly there was a need in the sport for professional referees. And so I just thought that was a really creative, impactful uh, program that uh, that really uh, went well. No, that is really that is really cool. And I. I still coach my daughter's soccer team, so I appreciate my I, st- I appreciate the refs more than I let on during the game. Put it that way. Right. Right. <laughs> so, in your post crew life, you launched McCullers Sports Group. Uh-huh. Was this something that was always in the back of your mind of this entrepreneurial spirit? Launch my own thing, lead my own thing, or if not, how did this come up? How did this become the business you want to move towards next? I tell people this is the only part of my career that's going according to plan, actually. <laughs> um, I, I've always wanted to have my own operation, my own business, my own consulting practice uh, where I could, you know, take take what I know, take what I've experienced and help others, you know, with what they're trying to accomplish. And, and, it, and it really comes down to that. Um, again, you know, my timing in life has been very fortunate. It, you know, when, when the Hunt family sold the team, uh, I knew I was in the last year of my contract. It yeah. was a perfect stepping off time. And um, 
I, I absolutely anticipated the, the build out of second and third division soccer to follow the path of major league soccer and the sport in general. And so, you know, my first call was to Alec Papadakis, who's the managing partner of the USL yeah. and kind of say, look, this is, this is what I want to do. And it's also getting back to my roots back in facilities, right. right? Which, um, you know, I, I, I thought, uh, was going to um, be something that's, that's satisfying and worthwhile for me. Again, community impact, you know, doing legacy projects that are uh, going to be you know, generational types of projects. And so, so that was the kind of the, again, the vision and the idea. And, um, you know, our first client was FC Cincinnati. Uh, and that, that turned out rather well. We were involved in the launch of the franchise um, their, you know, their first years at Nippert Stadium, renovations to Nippert Stadium, lease agreement with Nippert Stadium, and then the MLS uh, expansion bid and the and the financing model uh, of um, TQL Stadium there. Um, so that's, um, you know, that's that's how we got going. Um, you know, the pandemic slowed us down, but it didn't stop us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fortunately, uh, teams, you know, were still interested in in, in moving uh, their projects along. Uh, in many cases, they have no choice, um, especially soccer teams playing in minor league baseball stadiums yeah. right now. It's not sustainable. So um, they have to keep pressing forward. Um, I think communities, markets, governments are still looking for quality economic development projects and stadium anchored, um, um, you know, mixed use commercial development is is still very effective. Yeah. So, so that was, that was kind of the start of it. You know, we, we, I, I like to stay tied to the events. So we, we, we got involved in some, um, in a, in a festival startup. We got involved in a major uh, downtown festival here in Columbus, where we handle event marketing and sponsorship sales. So, you know, tapping into some of the naming rights deals and other major sponsorship deals that I've done over my career uh, going back to the deal maker, yeah, uh, conversation that we had. No, I'm going to lean into um, that. Trust me, I'm very curious about that. <laughs> so, so that's you know that's that's kind of those are you know the cornerstones. We do a lot of consulting with franchise startups and getting into um, you know actually developing uh, investment strategies and raising capital uh, you know for teams uh, that are looking at expansion markets and stadium projects and uh, and then we also have uh, you know a licensing pillar, we call them, uh, of our business, where we have a, a sister organization that does uh, retail merchandising and, 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 and brand-related uh, retail. So, um, And how many people do you have on staff? I mean, it sounds like you guys are taking on a lot. <laughs> we, we, uh, we, we, have a, we have a lot that we want to accomplish. Um, I've got a staff of five people right now, so we're, we're a small shop. Um, we got a lot going on. Yeah, you do. Um, it, you know, but uh, we're we're, uh, we're figuring it out. So I did, I spent an inordinate amount of time on your site, looking at the ongoing projects you have. And I counted over 20, uh, 20 open stadium related projects, all in different parts of the cycle, of course, but mm-hmm. give us a little bit of context. And I know maybe, maybe you do or don't have the context for it, but that seems like a lot to me. It's just thinking of it as a, as a, you know, domestic projects to build sports stadiums even just 20 sounds like a lot going on right now. And that's just the 20 that you're currently operating on. Um, do, in your point of view, is that a lot, a little, kind of normal? Uh, and, and what does that, if anything, indicate about the, the health or the status of the, the sports industry? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a lot. We, we split it up amongst our staff in terms of, um, you know, managing those markets and those projects. And, you know, what where we are with, with most of them are, are, you know, various stages of uh, all the way from vision. In some, we're in site selection. In some, we're in development of public-private partnership uh, and stadium financing. In some, we're in lease and operating agreement negotiation. And in some, we're getting into pre-construction and, uh, you know, getting ready to, to start, you know, closing financing and, and, and turning dirt. So, um, you know, we, we do have partners that we work with. You know, I think we've got uh, a good game plan. Yeah. I've got an exceptional team, you know, guys that, um, you know, most of them uh, are economists, actually, okay. uh, you know, coming out coming out of school, that's their, their degree, but they love sports. And um, so we do, you know, a lot of um, economic impact analysis and, 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 and going back to value proposition, you know, why it's a worthy investment, uh, you know, to build these stadiums. But, um, you know, I, I knew it was going to be like this and we've continued to grow and we've continued to grow with the USL, who's a key partner and client mm -hmm. of ours. So, you know, we, we work, hand in hand with their expansion group and their real estate group. And um, so we were able to see things, you know, coming down the road a little bit and, and plan for them, prepare for them. So, um, you know, I feel like we got a pretty good cadence right now with the team that we have, but um, yeah, that when you say 20, that sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot to me. <laughs> That's a lot. Those are big projects. Uh, I was at a, a conference actually just before the pandemic and Steve Coonan, the CEO of the Atlanta Hawks, was there, and he was speaking. And he talked about how when they built State Farm Arena, they did a completely different approach than they ever had before because fans have changed, and they don't just show up and sit in their seat for three hours. They, their whole thing was they create a lot of micro little environments, a lot of bars that would face the stadium, you know, different places where people could roam around. Is that something that you've seen as fan expectation really changed the way you develop and build some of these stadiums? And, and how has that changed from when you built crew to where you are now? Yeah. So, so certainly the social aspect of sports, I think has evolved. And I think especially in soccer, because it's so tribal, Yeah. Uh, you know, that, uh, that there, you know, you have your supporter section, you have your youth soccer group section, you have your, you know, your, your club seat and kind of corporate, you know, areas. So you have all these, these communities actually that come together in the stadium for this common cause, which is, which is pretty cool. But I have to say, I, you know, we, we identified that many, many years ago Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the type of experience that we wanted to and needed to deliver, uh, you know, for our fans. But I think, you know, probably how that manifests itself is a lot different today with technology and social media and, you know, big data yeah. and, you know, how your sponsors and brands uh, interact with, with consumers has changed a lot. You know, even, even food delivery in the stadium uh, is, you know, has changed with technology, with, you know, grab and go stations now that are actually not staffed, um, you know, so you get greater throughput. So that's better for the fan experience, yep. but food revenue is all about throughput. The faster you can get people through, the more transactions, Everybody the wins. more, yeah, you, you generate. So yeah, there's, there's definitely, it's, it's an interesting place in time you know, the, the technology, the underlying technology is a, a key part of that. Two key components here. You mentioned the deal maker and closer part, which I love. And I want to, I want to, I want to lean into that, but I also want to talk about leadership a little bit, because I think 
throughout your career, you've been a, a leader of, of people and of projects and of big visions. What are your keys? How do you go about it? Is it something you consciously think about? Like, how do I lead in this moment? Or does it come naturally to you? Do you think leaders are, are they born or are they made? Like, where do you attack this concept of, of leadership? Yeah, I, look, I think I've been a student of, of leadership for quite some time. I, I read a lot about it. I read a, a lot about successful leaders. So, you know, I think leadership skills can be developed. I don't think they have to be in, in, inherently in place. I think you can learn. But there's some things that are hard to learn. I mean, you know, vision, I think, is a key component. you got to have a vision. you got to be able to sell that vision, yeah. you know, externally, internally, to ownership, to fans, to the media. So I, th- I think great leaders are also great salespeople. But I think the, the thing for me that I talk about a lot that I think is the hardest thing for a lot of people uh, as it relates to leadership, and that's courage. Hmm. you got to have courage. Yeah. You know, you, you can't be afraid to make decisions. You can't be afraid to take risks. You just can't be afraid. And so if I, if I had to point to one thing, uh, and, I, and I don't know if this can be acquired or not, but, but courage is a big one. Yeah, no, I see that for sure. All right, let's talk about the dealmaker side and being a closer. <laughs> what is it that makes that so important? And what have you learned over the years? Like some people will come at it and say, hey, I want both sides to win because everybody goes happy and, and we'll do business in the future. You know, kind of a future lens on the art of deal making. And others are like, I want to win every battle, every deal. What's your approach? How do you become a closer? Yeah, I, I think being a deal maker and being a closer is about problem solving. Okay. I think it's about creative problem solving. And, you know, I've always loved puzzles, you know, growing up. So to me, it's a puzzle, you know, and I tell people the only place I know to start is on the corners and the edges. Same. My wife doesn't do it that way. I think she's insane, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's a challenge to, to be able to solve that problem. And for me, it's got to be solved to everybody's satisfaction because otherwise it's not successful. You know, if there's a loser, uh, you know, in, in that situation, then to me, that's not a successful deal. I love that. Straightforward to the point. Like, this is how it works. And, and nobody knows it better yeah. than you do. I'll finish up with this. You have given us so much of your time. I know you're busy. You guys have <laughs> so many projects you're working on right now. I, I want you to get back to it. Mm-hmm. You've led and experienced so many different ups and downs of the sports industry, so many different organizations, so many different partners, et cetera. You've come across a lot of people that have worked in the sports industry, some that have thrived, some that have failed. What would you say is that kind of consistent trait or personality or skill or whatever it may be, you, you can put it whatever you want, that is linked to six, being successful in our industry. Is there a certain thing, a pattern that you've identified of those people who are successful all kind of do this? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And this, this is going to be cliche and I apologize for it, but I believe it. It's people with passion, you know, it's people who believe in what they're doing, who have an obsession with what they're doing, frankly, yeah. you know, I, I think that's the, the the most important thing that I see, you know, most people is that they're just, they're all in, you know, they're all in on what they're doing and it's because they believe in it uh, because they have a passion for it. You know, I think, you know, other traits that I see in successful people are, you know, listening. Yeah. Listening is one of the greatest traits that anybody can have, you know, and I, <clears throat> I tell people, I'm like, okay, you know, I know you can hear, but can you listen? Yep. 
Because people need to be listened to, you know, and if you and if you're not, then you've got a problem already because you're not developing the type of relationship and trust um, that you probably need in that particular uh, situation, especially, you know, when you're playing a high stakes game uh, in the world of sports and and, you know, making critical investments and and taking risk on things, you've got to be a good listener um, and you got to be passionate. Yeah, I mean. Passion will get you through a lot of the ups and downs, right? Because you believe in what you're doing and have a focus. And then being a good listener is how you're going to do those deals. Being attentive to all those little details is so important. And to build a staff, to build a team, to build an entire culture requires it all. Mark, thank you so much. This has been an enlightening conversation. Best of luck with everything happening with McKellar Sports Group. It's amazing how many projects you guys have going. And you've made us all a whole hell of a lot smarter today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thanks to Mark for coming on the show. I really like that we took a future look in this conversation. Mark has so much experience that we can say, okay, what was it like when you lived through the recession and you had to make these business choices? Did you have to lay people off? Did you have to contract? Did you have to change your approach and your strategy? So getting his vision on that, but also understanding the businesses that he talks to now that he is in negotiations with, that he's doing land development deals with, what are they saying? Are they afraid? So such great information we can get out of this conversation. I hope you benefited from it as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. It's it's great hosting this show. I love having you all here. Please continue to rate, review, and subscribe. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And let's just look forward to a great 2023. I think the, the arrow is pointing up for all of us. 